Well, I want to draw your attention to the book of Revelation here this morning once again, and I'm going to be reading Revelation chapter 19, where we left off, verses 1 through 8. Last time we focused in on verse 7, and this time we're going to focus in on verse 8. I'm in no hurry to get through the chapter as it is a full chapter, full of insight, full of nuances. And I'm basically going to be taking each one of these nuances as we go through the chapter so that at the end of all of it, you'll be able to go back and read the chapter with a completely different set of eyes. And you'll be like, whoa, that, there's a lot more going on here than I first thought. And so uh, the easy study would be to get everyone excited and talk about the Jesus is coming, which indeed he is. And to do that once, and then next week we move on to chapter 20, um, I don't want to do that. I want to take these things very carefully, and then at the end of it, you'll come to your own conclusion. Whoa, Jesus is coming, type of thing. But I don't want to uh, force that on you before you're ready. So Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, and it says, And after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. And then I heard, verse 6, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, which is what we talked about last time. And then in verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God, I thank you for these people, and I thank you for their willingness to be here this morning, but more importantly, that our hearts are set apart in this time unto you. And essentially, we're saying, God, I have so many other things to do in life. I have so many responsibilities, so much chaos, but I'm choosing to make this time set apart to you, believing that you will, as I redeem the time, you will make my days long. And so, God, we ask that you would reach these people and you'd speak truth to them and you'd heal their hearts, Lord. There's so much weakness and insecurity in all of our lives, but the day of trial and stress has this tendency to squeeze it out. And we think that uh, the immediate situation is the reason that stuff is coming out of us. And no, that stuff has been in you from the day you were probably born. But the day of trial reveals it. And I ask God for us to recognize these things, not so we can walk in condemnation, but so that we could be governed by a different force, so that when the pressures come, and indeed they are, as opposed to vinegar coming out, it would be sweet waters. So we ask, God, a change in heart. I pray that you give clarity to the speaker. I pray that you give grace to the listener. Their hearts would be fertile ground. Help me to rightly divide this word of truth. And I pray as the sum effect of this time is that we would once again have a fresh glory unto our King. So heal us, Lord, and forgive us. And because we're in a spiritual battle, would you bind the work of the devil, who is always at work. He is always playing his games. And I ask, God, that we'd be wise to that. Not interested in it, but wise to it. So give us grace. Forgive our sins. Put the blood of Jesus upon this house and bind the enemy of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in the book of Proverbs, if you go back into the Old Testament, we encounter two contrasting figures personified as women. And we have what we would call lady wisdom or wisdom, and we have the forbidden woman. And the forbidden woman in the book of Proverbs is often referred to as the adulteress or a foolish woman. But nonetheless, these two women represent the opposing paths and voices that we can listen to. Each one is calling to humanity with a distinct message and invitations. Lady wisdom in the book is depicted as a virtuous woman who embodies wisdom. That's why sometimes we just call her wisdom. She has wisdom and understanding and righteousness. She calls out from the highest points in the city offering guidance. She gives instruction. She gives the, and, and if you listen to her, she leads you down the path of life. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 9, and verse 3, it reads as such. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And her voice is one of discernment. It's one of wisdom. And she's urging individuals to pursue knowledge and righteousness and the fear of the Lord. Later on in that same chapter in verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You want insight into the complexities of life? Don't study everything of the complexities. Keep your gaze in a first cause upon the king, and then he will give you insight into the complexities of life. And she promises blessing in chapter 8 and verse 18. She promises blessing and honor and prosperity to those who heed her, her call and who walk in her ways. That is, they've responded to the call. In verse 18, it reads, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. In fact, it's to this woman that her children at the end of the book rise and call her blessed in chapter 31. But as I said, there's two women that are calling out in the book of Proverbs. There's wisdom and there's the forbidden woman. And in contrast, the forbidden woman is portrayed as an immoral and seductress. That, Interestingly enough, as you look at it, both women are asking you to come into their house. Both of them are saying, hey, come sup with me. Hang out with me. But we know what's going to happen in one house, and we know what's going to happen in the other. And she's trying to lead the people of God astray with her smooth words and her enticing allurements. It, it reveals to us in the chapter 7 that she lurks in the shadows. She's seeking to entice the unsuspecting into her web of deception and sin. In chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my, my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the streets now near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. And thus her voice is one of folly and destruction, and she is not to be listened to. She promises pleasures and satisfaction, but ultimately leading to ruin, to shame, and to death. 
In fact, it goes on to tell us that if you embrace her bosom, she will reduce you to a loaf of bread. In Proverbs 7 and verse 21, it says, With much seductive speech, she persuaded him, and her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he followed her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till the arrow pierces his liver, and the bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a way to Sheol, to hell, to the grave. Her house is a way to Sheol going down to the chambers of deaths. And thus the call in Proverbs is to listen to Lady Wisdom. Both women are crying out. Both are making their plea, but the choice is to decide which voice am I going to listen to. And we can listen to the voice of wisdom and righteousness, represented by wisdom, Lady Wisdom, or we can listen to the voice of folly and destruction, embodied in that typical, uh, that uh, uh, symbolic woman, forbidden woman. But the decision's ours. And yet, whatever decision we make, that decision will ultimately determine the path that we will ultimately walk, and therefore the destiny that we're going to eventually inherit. The choice is ours. And I belabor this point because in Revelation 19, we likewise uh, encounter two symbolic women, the harlot and the bride. And they're contrasted to each other, each representing contrasting spiritual realities and allegiances. The one is supposed to embody the voice of wisdom. The other is embodying the voice of folly. In other words, these two voices are still crying out with their message and their invitation through these two separate systems, the harlot and the bride. The church, the true church, the bride, is calling out in wisdom. She she has a message that is for the reconciliation of mankind. And she's leading, as a consequence, people down the path of life. But I might say that just because I call myself a church or a Christian, it doesn't mean that I'm part of the church. And I think the biggest turnoff for non-Christians, hate to break it to you, is Christians. That's why I said years ago that if I was the devil, I'd be a Christian. (laughs) But wisdom is known by its children. Jesus talked about this. That is, what is coming out of your life? And it's moments of pressure, as I already talked about, at least in prayer. It's the moments of pressure, the challenges, or the discomfort that those moments reveal our true nature. What am I really built on? And because when I'm squeezed, squeezed, as I said, the facade of religiosity falls away, leaving us with an honest reflection of who we are at our core if we're at all honest. And when we see who we are, it's sometimes not very pretty, is it? You say, oh, God, just show me a little bit of my heart. And he shows you this little tiny piece of it. And you go, ah! <laughs> He's like, dude, I only showed you this much. <laughs> Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord in Isaiah 6. And he sees the glory of the Lord. And his response was, woe is me. This man who is one of the most godly men the history of the world has ever seen, he comes into the presence of the Lord. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the reality is to, to come into this presence, to come into that that king of kings, it's to actually confront the reality of who we are. 
And if we're honest, well, we can either confess it, as Isaiah did, I'm a man of unclean lips, Lord, or we can suppress it and project it onto somebody else. But the choice is ours whenever we hear truth, whenever we're confronted with truth. And the bride has her voice, but the harlot has her voice as well. And thus the harlot is likewise crying out with a voice of passion. Put simply, she validates the decisions of her followers, the decisions that are leading them to hell. Even when they lead them to ruin and to harm, she instructs you to despise God's faithful servants. You say, well, nobody has told me that, but we're talking about a spirit. It's not an actual woman. But this spirit comes in and teaches you, hate him. Why? Just because. And it says they watched Jesus very closely to find something wrong with him. And as soon as they found it, they said, ha, now we have justification to behave boorishly towards this one who's just a man. Well, he was a man, but he was God's son. And he was God's servant. He was a prophet, and he was more than the prophet. He was the creator of this living universe, and they hated him. But they found something wrong, a contradiction. So with all passion, they listened to the voice of the harlot, which was false religion from the beginning of time. Though thinking themselves to be the true servants of God, they took opportunity to express their rage against this woman who dared to speak something that did not align with their preconceived ideas of what they wanted to be, what they wanted to do, where they wanted to go, etc., etc. And it says that they, they, she was intoxicated with the blood of the saints. In other words, when you're intoxicated, it's because you really enjoy drinking something. You know, I've gone overseas and I've drinking various drinks. Um, I'm not a big drinker. I'm not against drinking, but I just don't like it. just doesn't do anything for me. I've tried it here and there, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah it's, you know. You know, by the time I drink my third bottle of schnapps, it's like, oh, dude, I hate this stuff. I absolutely hate it. I mean, I'm just, I'm down, I'm one, bo- one bottle, I'm done. I'm thinking, that's, I'm good. I don't, just don't do three bottles. I mean, I'm a little exaggerating here a little bit, but not too much. But when you're intoxicated, you enjoy the thing that you're engaging in. You're like, I really like this. Remember years ago, I told you that I had this deal. At, it was at Albertsons. They had three for a dollar, two liter bottles of soda. And so being poor and single, and I bought, you know, like 20 of them. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I spent $7 on soda, and I've got enough soda to drink, because I didn't know people actually drink water. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, that's a novel concept. And so, so my $7 of soda led me to $250 in cavities. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that wasn't a deal. But I was intoxicated. And as a father, a good father, I'm constantly watching the drinks. I mean, I come this morning, my youngest says to me, he goes, Dad, can I have a, a, a Thai tea this morning? And it's like, he doesn't want to eat breakfast. What he wants is Thai tea. Why the Thai tea? Because it's full of sugar. And if I gave over to that, he'd be intoxicated with sugar. And she's intoxicated with the blood of the saints. But as I said, her path leads to death. And who wants to go to a path of death? I mean, think this through. Do you really want to die? Okay, she's seductive. What she's saying makes me feel good. I like it. It titillates me. Great. But where does that lead? And I wonder if we were to raise our hands this morning, which we won't because I'm not that guy. How many of us would say, I want to die. I want to go to the path of death. I want destruction. 
And yet when the voice of wisdom comes in and says, listen, this is an error. This is something that you need to be corrected. When the servants of God speak something, the response is this violence that comes out. You go, something else is at work. It's not doesn't mean you're not a believer. It means that area of your life is something the devil will manipulate at his beck and call. All he has to do is pull the card when he wants to. And that's why the Bible says that there's a way that seems to, to man to be the way of right to man, but the end thereof is death. And the message of Scripture is choose life. Deuteronomy, it says, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. And man has a choice. And here's the caveat. There's only one path that leads to life, but there's many paths that lead to death. And so you have the harlot and you have the bride. The harlot, as we've seen in previous studies, symbolizes spiritual corruption. She embraces idolatry, and she embraces, as we said, the persecution of the saints. Her voice is sounded in religious contexts. I mean, when Paul says they, they transformed themselves into ministers of righteousness, that's the, the context of religion. Satan in the Bible is constantly working in the context of religion. He is not working in the context of, you know, the guy down at the bar. <laughs> I mean, that guy's doing it to himself. But her voice is in the religious context, leading men to hate one another. As Jesus warned in Matthew 24, the love of most will grow cold in the last days. It grows cold because her influence is increased in the last days. This one who is drunk with the blood of the saints, that spirit that is behind her, it actually begins to permeate. And men begin to hate one another, betray one another. And we think, well, my situation is unique. I can tell you, I've been doing this pastor thing for 30 years. Feels like 7,000, but 30 years. And I've seen the same pattern over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's the same thing over and over again. And everyone thinks their situation is unique. It's not unique. I have the advantage of kind of looking at it from a distance and watching people in their lives. It's the same thing through different vehicles. It's the same spirit. And it's not to condemn anybody. It's not to criticize people here this morning. It's to say that if those doors and those issues aren't addressed, don't deceive yourself to thinking that you're going to stand in the day of real trial. I mean, we've got a Christian church anymore. You guys are excluded. You've got a Christian church anymore that they hear any convicting message whatsoever. They wilt. I think, wilt. I think we call them snowflakes. But we think that's just those darn liberals. Yeah, it's the church. <laughs> Bunch of snowflakes. And they think, well, in the day of trial is going to come. I'm going to stand strong. And I say, you are so deceiving yourself. You can't even sit under a convicting Bible study and you run and tuck tail. The Lord rebuke you. And we don't say that to, to, to hurt people. We're saying you are believing a lie. We're going to stand in the last days. And Jesus said there's going to be a great falling away from the faith. <laughs> That's right. I heard that voice. It's right now. Lord, is that you speaking? I felt like pigs in space moment. You know, you could... You, <laughs> Sorry. No. Amen, sister. And she produces the works of the flesh. The love is growing cold. She clothes herself with a religious cloak, but it's not life, it's death. And all of us used to live that way. All of us have a sin nature still living within us, by the way. Holy cow. The Pharisee pretends he doesn't. Pharisee pretends that, oh, sin? Me? No. And I found that the more superficially pharisaical the person is, the more outwardly religious they are. I've seen that over and over again. You know, the, the, the Bible says, don't be overly much righteous. For why die before your time? 
It's not true righteousness, it's self-righteousness. Don't be overly much righteous. It's the story I told you years ago in a Roman study. I said about the girl and this guy's looking for a, a wonderful lady to marry and he uh, has never been married before and he wants this chaste virgin. He finally goes to church and he sees this girl with the, the dress all the way up to the bottom of her chin and the dress all the way down to her wrists and her dress all the way down to her bottom of her ankles. And he says, finally, I found a woman that's chaste. She's everything that I could ever wanted. They get to know each other, they get married and their honeymoon night comes together. And she begins to unclothe and uh, what have you. She begins to take off the dress. He notices she had tattoos all the way up to her neck. She had tattoos all the way down to her wrist. She had tattoos all the way down to her ankles. And what appeared to be like, oh, she's so chaste, was actually only a religious cloak to cover the fact she was covered from head to toe in tattoos. That's a perfect example of the religious man. And the more religious they are, the more they, they, they stand upon all these externalities and what have you, I have found that there is oftentimes this, this deeper perversion that they're trying to cover. And what people do is they judge their sins in you. That, that's what the religious man Men always judge sin. But the religious man judges his sins in you. It's called projection. And she produces cleverly through religious context the works of the flesh. It's what Paul teaches in Galatians 5.19 where he says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, not exclusive, but things like these. And he said, I warn you, as I told you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, how dare you? You're not inheriting it now. I'm living under the dominion of this darkness. But don't worry, one day I'm going to live under the dominion of light. doesn't mean we're sinlessly perfect. But every indication of the New Testament is that I have a choice. And when I do those things, because that sin nature, everything in that list lives inside of me, Almost everything in that list lives inside of me. I sit back and I think, Lord, I never want to do those things, but part of me does. And I never have. And I say, God, please forgive me. Please, if that's something I'm going to do, please protect me. I mean, how many people have had weird thoughts in their head? I have. And you, you have these weird thoughts and you go, oh, no, I did it. No, you didn't. You thought it. It's in your heart. But don't do it. And so as opposed to walking in condemnation, when I have those weird thoughts or a weird dream, I wake up in condemnation. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, I feel dirty. I say, Lord Jesus, forgive me if I did sin. I don't think I did sin because I didn't do it. But if that's something I will do or something that's in my heart, I ask that you prevent me from ever doing it and cleanse me with the blood of Jesus. I mean, we're a little bit smarter, aren't we? We don't fall into the trap of the devil of false condemnation. But what she does is she justifies these behaviors and promises that through them, you'll experience life. Let's press the limits of grace. Well, grace, in my understanding, is the ability not to sin, not to keep on sinning. I mean, it's like, holy cow, you jump into the mud and you get all dirty and say, hey, here's the grace. Come back next week and we'll have a deeper pit of mud for you to jump in. It's like, I understand that people jump in mud. But isn't grace taking them out of the mud and washing them clean so it's like they never jumped in the mud at all? And then to begin to teach them not to jump in mud? Not anymore. She teaches them. And for the time being, in the short run, she delivers on her experiences of satisfaction. She entices individuals with the promise of power and pleasure and worldly gain. But where she's leading them is actually away from the truth 
and the righteousness that comes in the kingdom of God. And because people are careless and believe their own feelings, they unwittingly listen to her. Nevertheless, her deceptive and seductive voice is heeded, often without people realizing it. And we live in a culture where emotions dictate behaviors rather than facts. It's a culture where offense is easily taken among one another, precisely fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that, quote, the love of most will grow cold, followed by, and people will be easily offended one of another. And the assiduous whisper of the age is this, get offended, take offense, be offended, get angry. And yet here she is, luring humanity into spiritual bondage and estrangement from God. But this is contrasted with the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ symbolizes faithfulness and purity and unwavering love for the body of Christ. The harlot hates the body of Christ and looks for opportunities to kill it, but the true body of Christ loves the body of Christ. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 prohibited you from taking communion. It wasn't, are you worthy to take communion? No, I'm not worthy. I had a bad thought this morning. And therefore, don't. That's not, you're completely missing the argument. He was saying, you say you love Christ, but you hate his body. How is that even possible? How is it even possible for you to say that you love Jesus Christ, but you hate the followers and the servants of Jesus Christ? And you're fault-finding, you're attacking them, and you're slandering them. How is that even possible? It's a contradiction. Don't take communion because you're only deceiving yourself. You're probably not deceiving your spouse, probably not deceiving your kids. You're deceiving yourself. So don't take communion. And the body of Christ is known for the love for the body of Christ. Her love does not wax cold because it's not an emotion. It's a choice. We're disciples. We're disciplined ones. I don't feel like being nice to you guys sometimes. You said, feels like all the time. I know. Pray for me. But I choose to. And there's no one in this room or anyone else that I've ever encountered in ministry that can say, he was so mean to me. Show me the person. I've had many people, and it's not about me here this morning, I'm just giving an example. I've had many people over the years say that they heard that I was mean, but they have never seen me treat a single one of you with anything but respect and honor. Not a single one. And the reality is the body of Christ loves the body of Christ, and it leads to life. She directs people in the path of life. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, what's our message? What's our voice? What's our language? Entrusting to us the message of backbiting, bitterness, hatred, contention, strife, fault-finding. Is that what it says? (laughs) Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And thus, her voice is one of love and compassion. And though it's bold in its proclamation, it's love and compassion. And she's inviting individuals to embrace the truth of the gospel and to experience the transforming power of God's grace. 
Yet with all speakers of truth, you guys know this, if we speak the truth, it can sting, can't it? And therefore the modern cleric, his whole ambition is to preach a message that doesn't sting, but at the expense of truth. And he's guilty of being coming the one where Paul warns in the last days, in the last days men are going to heap teachers to themselves that tell them what they want to hear. And 20 years ago in Spokane, a church that I think is a godless assembly, quite honestly, if you look at the fruit, but it was starting to become very popular, and he was interviewed, the leader of the church was interviewed in the Spokesman Review, and he says that's because we scratch where people itch. And I say, hmm, you're screaming out the fact that you're a false prophet. Of course, you don't teach the Bible in your church, so you don't know that. (laughs) But if you do what a faithful minister to one lover, the Lord Jesus Christ does, and preach the truth with love, it'll sting. They always say that, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. And as opposed to people saying, ah! I say, if, if you could, I was telling my daughter this morning, I said, if someone came up to me and said, Ben, you are the fattest person I've ever met in my life. I mean, holy cow. I have not seen so much a chunk to the east, a chunk to the west. I mean, holy cow, you have a whole zip code to, designed to you. You are one of the fattest and ugliest people I've ever met. And I believe the second part. But, you know, but yeah, I sit back and I say, what are you talking about? I wouldn't be affected one bit. Now, if you said you look like an orange on toothpicks, you know, then, then I would probably cry. But, but if you said I was the, the fattest person on earth, I wouldn't. And I always wonder why people can get so upset over something, and I realize I think it hit the mark. And thus her voice speaking out is compassion, it's love, though it's bold, but it can sting. But here's the thing, it leads to life. There's the difference. It leads to life. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, come, let us return to the Lord. He's talking to the people of God. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. What that tells me is truth tears us. It strikes us but it will heal us and it will bind us if we can own it. And you see, I have, a, I have to have a kind of a humility if I can hear what's being said from the word of God. Pride reacts. Pride is offended. Pride criticizes and maligns. But humility listens. Wisdom comes and says, I'm going to consider that. I'm going to think, I may not agree with it, but I'm going to consider it. It weighs the options. And the Bible talks about this, Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. James 1, 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Proverbs 15, 31, the ear that listens to give to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. 
Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And thus, in order to heed the call of wisdom and truth, I have to have humility because sometimes wisdom and truth hurts. And if I don't heed that voice, it'll lead to death. The scripture teaches that there's going to be a time in the last days marked by unprecedented deception and moral decay. And Jesus himself foretold of the perilous times, cautioning, as we've already said, that the love of most will grow cold and people will betray one another and hate one another in Matthew 24, verse 10. And this is going to happen. This is happening. Not just in the world, but in the church. The warning was for the church, not the world. The world is guaranteed. And this is what we would call the great falling away from the faith. Not a falling away from going to church, though that may be the case, but from the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In fact, 1 Timothy 4.1 speaks about the Spirit explicitly saying that in the latter times, in the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What do you mean teachings of demons? I mean, could you come every single week and say, you know, come hear our pastor. He's a demon. You know, it's like, really? Red spandex, I got a Van Dyke and a pitchfork. He was like, hey, <laughs> this week and every, every verse I reference is chapter 6, verse 66, you know, or, or chapter 66, verse 6. You know, it's a teaching of a demon. What do you mean? Well, what this means is that they're not going to be convinced, they're, they're, they're going to be convinced that what they're thinking and feeling is from God when in fact it is not. It doesn't pass the test of Scripture. They have strong feelings, but no discipline to take it back to the Word of God. They just react in the moment. That's called sensual wisdom, which according to James 3 is demonic, it's of the devil. In other words, it's the way the devil manipulates people when they're undisciplined in the ways of faith. I would say that the American church in general has not done a very good job of raising up disciples, disciplined ones. And in fact, even if we are a disciplined personality, we don't have the information that is freely given in the scripture. So there are doctrines of demons, but look at the fruit. And when God says these things, when he does these things, it's not to judge people. It's to protect people. And if you're defensive, you're only hurting yourself. And thus, the New Testament presents these chilling prophecies that underscore the magnitude of the spiritual battles we will and we are presently facing, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse and worse. 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil people, imposters, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the statement of the scripture on what the last days are going to look like. It's going to get so bad, you have no idea. And the snowflakes aren't going to survive. How dare you? That song, we sang that last week. Woo! (laughs) You idiot. (laughs) Onward Christian soldier. (laughs) You know, it's like, my chair is too uncomfortable. Actually, our chairs are quite comfortable. Unless you're being convicted. Anybody (laughs) hate their chair this morning? (laughs) But it's a battle. And it's a battle not merely against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness and deception. 
It's a spiritual conflict. Paul says in Ephesians 6, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Some people do. They're immature. We don't. But we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And thus, in the midst of such tumultuous times, the voices of the harlot and the forbidden woman will grow louder and louder and more and more enticing. They will give you more reasons to believe them than you ever. It'll be palpable. Like, I've never been so confident of what I'm believing and feeling right now. But look at the underlying fruit. One of my children, youngest, sometimes, you know, because he's a human being, and it's not weird, he'll get real angry at something. and He's not an angry person, but just in a normal sense. And I'll say, do you, do you like the way you feel right now? No. But do, do you like having the joy on the inside instead? Yeah. Do you realize that by demanding that this be done in your life, it's creating that anger and tension? And it's not that important of an issue. So would you rather have, you know, whatever, candy bar or whatever, or would you rather have peace on the inside? And you walk them through. This is the way, I mean, I talked to him, you know, however the circumstance presents it. I'm just kind of imagining an idea right now. But that's the tone in which I talk to him. And yet many people can't see that the fruit of, they're giving into something, and it leads to their own bitterness, their own destruction, their own tumult. And the last days are going to have many opportunities for slander and hatred. She's going to be drunk with the blood of the saints, as we saw in previous studies. She'll be intuitively hateful towards the servants of our God, and she will take offense and think that that's a virtue. Jesus doesn't seem to have been too offended too many times. He was hurt. He wept over people's sin. But he doesn't seem to be too offended. And that's not us. That's not followers of Christ. You're saying, well, I am that. Then here's what you do. You confess it and ask God to forgive you and ask him to have rulership over that area in your life. I mean, that's really, this isn't rocket science. We have to be disciplined. Not giving into our insecurities and impulses in the moment of trial. We're, to be the, we're not to be reactionary and easily offended. We're to wait upon the Lord, whereby he has made a promise that he will renew your strength. And you know why you do those things? Why I do those things? Is because when you're so tired, you're so exhausted. Anger and reaction gives you the energy to keep going. And if you're not receiving your energy from our Lord, you're going to need energy to do something because and anger is the easiest way. Doesn't mean anger is always sin. I'm not saying that. But it's the easiest kind of crack pipe, get your energy kind of situation you can fall into. And all we can do is come to our Lord and confess it. Jesus promised that temptations are going to be increasing in the last days, and therefore the bride is supposed to make herself ready. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, Jesus warns of a day when many will come to him professing their allegiance and claiming to have done great works in his name, only to be met by the shocking revelation that he never knew them. It's what I call the day of surprises. Because those who have placed their confidence in their own works or religious rituals 
we'll be confronted with the reality that salvation is not earned through human effort, but it's a gift of God's grace received by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 talks about this. And thus, true discipleship involves not only confessing Jesus as our Lord, but also surrendering our lives to his lordship. Not becoming a Christian, but being a Christian you become. And allowing his spirit to transform us from the inside out. And ultimately, as the New Testament says, being conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 4 says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Galatians 2.20, it says, It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ Jesus living within me. And you see, it's the transformative power of encountering a real Jesus, a living Jesus, not the flannel graph Jesus, not the fake Jesus, but allowing him to take residence within our hearts and to begin to live his life within us. And he'll never, you have to invite him. You have to be willing to let the one who died and rose again to come into your life. And when I'm talking about Christ, I'm not talking about the impersonal Christ principle espoused in the New Age philosophies. The Christian faith centers on a personal, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ himself, a real person. And it's not merely a belief in abstract principles or doctrines, but it's a living, breathing communion with the Savior who died and rose again for our redemption. And sometimes you're not going to feel very close to him. And so you say, Lord, I don't feel very close. I feel distant. But help me to honor you. And you know what I found? When you first come to Jesus, he gives you this abundance of faith. And then he begins to pull that back so that you'll trust him. Trust me. He's building your faith in the measures that we don't feel it, but we practice it. And so we invite him in. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see his governance until the life of God enters into the soul of man. So that this spiritual rebirth is not a mere superficial change in our behavior or our appearance, but it's a radical transformation of the heart. And it only comes when I say, not my will, thy will be done. A new birth into the living relationship with Christ. Years ago, I heard the analogy from Paul Washer when he was rebuked. It's kind of his outbreak sermon from about 20 plus years ago. And he said, many people are claiming to have encountered Jesus, but let me ask you a question. I'm paraphrasing and changing, so go back to his original sermon. But he said, let me ask you a question. If you got hit by a train, how would you describe that? And what is more powerful, a train or the true and the living God? And yet you're claiming to have come into a relationship with the true and the living God, and there's no radical impact. Something happened so radical. I was talking to my dad the other day about this, and he says, at the end of the day, it was the Holy Spirit that reached out to me. It wasn't the cleverness of the preacher or the people witnessing to me. There was a dynamic of the Spirit of God that was intent on making me born again. And I don't look for external reforms or moralistic efforts to conform others to our own standards of righteousness. That's not what I look for. But the Christian life is not about self-improvement. It's not about moral achievements, but it's receiving a living Christ into our lives and allowing him to do his work, his transformative work in our lives. I talked with some of you that have relatives that are homosexuals. I don't agree if, if you're in the inside thing with Alistair Begg. As much as I love Alistair Begg, his 
take on that recently. It's kind of shocking to a lot of people. And John MacArthur, who I actually don't really enjoy his preaching that much, but John MacArthur uh, hit the nail on the head in confronting Alistair Begg, who he loves and he's friends with. And I am in no position to judge him or to, uh, that's, I'm just saying truth is truth, right? I respect that man immensely, but when somebody says something publicly, you have to kind of address it, lest people kind of go down that road. But some of you have talked about your, your friends and your loved ones. And people have misunderstood what I've said when I said, you're talking about the homosexuality. You don't, you don't get in there and say, you know, address their homosexuality and then bring them to Christ. That's getting the cart before the horse. And in no way am I saying it's okay to live that way, but I don't judge them. I don't hate them. I don't dislike them. And it seems that there's these two opposite extremes. You either tolerate them or you hate them. No, we don't tolerate it because of the word of God. We don't hate them because of the word of God. There's something in between where we address the issue with truth and love. And this is difficult, especially when it's your friends and loved ones. And thus the whole issue is receiving Christ. So the question is then posed, well, do I have to give these things up, X, Y, and Z, before I can come to Christ? Well, let me ask you a question. Did you have to give up smoking before you came to Christ? Smoking is not the unpardonable sin. Charles Spurgeon will prove that to you. (laughs) Smoked like a (laughs) sieve. (laughs) Cigars. But is that the unpardonable sin? Nope. You'll get to heaven faster, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And nobody smokes. That's, that's a misnomer. You suck. The, the, the cigarette smokes, but you're the sucker. So it's, it's, you got to get that right. But it's not the unpardonable sin. So did you have to give up smoking to come to Jesus? Where does the requirement end? Now you come to Christ. And he comes and get, comes inside of you. And when he comes inside of you, he then begins to address everything in your life. So the very moment you came to Christ, all of your sins were gone and you dropped every bad habit you ever thought of. And really, that's your experience? Not mine. And you'll find that nowhere in Scripture. So where do we draw the line? Here's where you draw the line. Focus upon Christ. Receive Christ. Let Christ be glorified. Let him instruct. Encourage each other in Christ. Point to Christ. Learn of him. Take his yoke upon you. Follow Christ. As we take Christ in, he gives us the power and the insight to give things up. But if we deal with those things that are just giving things up, we will never bring people into Christ. It's what Jesus confronted in his day. They're called the Pharisees. And he says, you travel over land and sea to make one convert and yet you make them into twice the servants of hell. Why? Because they convinced the people this is the path of life. But all it was was religious reform where they never encountered the true and the living God. That is the vast imprint of good Bible teaching churches in our country today. And unless the Spirit of God is drawing, and I'm not going Calvinistic on you, but it has to be a spirit of God. And we can't jumpstart his timing with people. We have to be patient. But the Christian life is not about self-improvement. As I said, it's not about moral achievements. It's allowing the Christ to transform us. And as we abide in him, yielding to his leading, he will indeed change us, as the Bible says, from glory unto glory, shaping us into the vessels of his grace, of his love and his truth, 
And he begins to empower us increasingly to bear witness to his kingdom because we're showing people that he's in charge of me in a world that desperately needs his redeeming love. And you know who has the hardest time with this message? You guys know it. Christians. And so in verse 8, where it says that it was granted to the bride, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What that means is that the righteous deeds of the saints are not self-generated or meritorious works, but rather the outflow of the life of Christ dwelling within them. The works were granted to her. And it's not a matter of striving to attain righteousness through human effort, but it's allowing, it's a choice, the indwelling Christ to manifest his life and his character within us and through us. It's the prayer, I will thy will. Lord, I bow my knee. Let your will be done. And that can be painful at times because we think that God's going to do something mean to us. I mean, I have situations and opportunities and et cetera, et cetera, just as you do. And I have experienced the pain of thinking, if I give those to you, Lord, I won't get them. I found the exact opposite. I found that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But we pursue the desires of our heart at the expense of delighting in the Lord. And God says that's idolatry. I cannot reward that. Hudson Taylor said the secret to a changed life is an exchanged life. And when you give your life to Christ, he's no debtor to any man. You can't outgive God. And his spirit then takes up residence within us, empowering us to live lives that are pleasing to God and to bear witness to his kingdom. And the righteous deeds that flow from the life of the believer are not the result of self-righteousness or moral superiority, but the transforming work of the Holy Spirit conforming us into the image of his Son. And therefore, as the bride of Christ, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. It's Christ himself. And our righteous deeds are a reflection of his life and character dwelling within us. And as we abide in him and yielding to his leading, he empowers us to live lives marked by love and by humility by compassion and obedience to the word of God. You separate those things out, you'll be a wicked Pharisee. But when we do this, we adorn ourselves with the fine linen of righteousness, the deeds that testify to his transforming power and grace in our lives. And all of us were broken and flawed when we came to Christ. You know, it's like you hear the guy saying, well, you know, when I came to Jesus, I mean, I did, but I didn't really need to come to Jesus. You know, I was five years old. And I didn't have this deep sense of, of guilt over living an alcoholic lifestyle. I was five. <laughs> but an alcoholic lifestyle can help convince you that you need Christ. But what I did know is that I needed Christ. I saw people around me that had the life of Christ in them. They were witnesses, ambassadors of his kingdom. They were living the life of Christianity, and I, all by myself, at the duck pond, at the Shiloh Study Center in Eugene, outside, actually Lowell, Oregon there, outside of Eugene. And I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to be a Christian too. I'm a five-year-old. Okay, give me a break. (laughs) 
And all I can tell you is that suddenly I started sharing Jesus with my best friend, Timmy, and I led him to the Lord. So I think in the tree in our front yard, that big black walnut tree that we would climb up all the time, and I shared Jesus with him, and Timmy gave his life to the Lord. And all I know is that I was so embarrassed, but I did read my Bible, but then my sister would see me reading my Bible, and I'd get embarrassed, and I'd cover it up with my pillow. And because of her, she thought I was doing drugs, but I wasn't doing drugs. I was reading my Bible. (laughs) We judge people on our own experiences. (laughs) But when we came to Christ, we were broken. And wouldn't you like to know that here's Christ, maybe you've done horrible things in your life, Wouldn't you like to know, think of it in terms of a relationship. It's easier for girls to think this way than us guys because it's just kind of creepy. But we we talk about ourselves as being the bride of Christ. It's just, it's just, I got to get my head around this. It's it's picture language. But if you're the bride, you're going to get married. Wouldn't you like to know that you can be forgiven? Think, Think this through. Wouldn't you love a man? who not only recognized what you did in your past, but he full well knew everything that you did, and he loved you anyway. Wouldn't it be wonderful to to not have to pretend around him and to hide your previous life, but to still be loved? Christ doesn't justify the sin. But the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Anybody ever been in a relationship, you know, the old movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer? He was enamored with her, and then he found out, you kill people. You know? And yet, while we were still sinners, God knew everything. He dies for us, which was the great expression of his love. And he'll never tolerate your sin. He'll confront you. He'll love you. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He'll cleanse you. And then he will bless you in ways that you never thought were even possible. The the trials are going to come to everybody, Christian or not. But the difference is, I have a king. And that king says at the end of the chapter, he is the king of kings in verse 16. He is the Lord of lords, and he's coming to defend me. I have a king. I have a master. I have a bridegroom. So thank you, Lord, for your righteous deeds that you've lived your life through us, that you've offered your great salvation. And Lord, I know that the world is increasing in pressure, and this year is going to be a pressure cooker, especially in an election year. Most of us are intelligent enough, I think all of us are intelligent enough, to know the consequence of what's before us nationally. And I pray, God, that though we deal with these things, we would only do things out of relationship to you. Our focus would not be on these things, but it would be upon you. And you have pretty much guaranteed that if we only stay our mind upon you, that is the only way we're going to survive this. And so the devil comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, to embitter, to cause dissension and division and hatred. The devil is very active, you said, in the last days, and then when he's active, we're surprised. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be defined by these things, that we would be defined by a new kingdom. I pray that we wouldn't forsake each other, that we love the body of Christ. When one member hurts, we all hurt. 
When one member is grieved, we all grieved. And probably more importantly, when one member is full of joy, we rejoice. And I pray that we would begin to be and continue to be that body of Christ. That maybe as we're in church, it's not about us at all. Maybe it's about that one person. And so, Lord, I pray that we would engage one another in a way that would build up the body of Christ because the days are going to get bad. But we're not scared because you're not scared. But once in a while, some of us do get scared. And so the others of us rally around and say, hey, you're getting scared. Let me listen to your problem. Let me validate your problem. Let me hear your problem, but then let me point you back to the Christ and remind you that though those problems are real, we shouldn't be scared because he's not scared. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom to these people, that not only would the bride make herself ready, but the deeds of the bride would be done out of relationship to you. For these, indeed, are the righteous deeds of the saints. We thank you, Lord. Heal our hearts and forgive our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.